Caleb Christopher, how's it going, man? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. Uh, thanks for being here today. Um, so I, I see you're with InfoSec Consulting. Yes. Unfortunately, I am InfoSec Consulting at the moment, but I'm looking to change that. That's fair. So uh, your website talks about um, IT service providers that are struggling to monetize security. So what exactly are you doing for IT service providers and MSPs? Well, okay. So I used to work for an MSP and they wanted to get into security and turn themselves into an MSSP. And I think that's like, that's how everybody else is too. Everybody wants to start selling security. The the, the issue is somebody else is going to sell security to your clients if you don't. So if you're an IT service provider, you kind of need to get that under control because that's a very strategic component of that client relationship and you need to own it. So how do you do that? Well, you've got to build a cybersecurity program. That means you need sales and marketing material. You need your salespeople to understand security well enough to communicate it to buyers or potential buyers. And you need a technical team that can deliver those services or partners who can deliver those services. And putting all that together from scratch is six to 12 months worth of work if we're being generous. I mean, I listened to a, an episode of what, um, what's that other podcast, Ovix, uh, Frankly MSP, and they had a special issue on somebody who went from MSP to MSSP. And it was an inter- interesting issue, but the lady said that it took her a full 12 months. It was a big investment, and they were dedicated to it, and it took 12 months. So if that was their purpose, to become an MSSP, not just to add security, it's not very possible to just do on your own. The, the sheer amount of time and money you have to spend to get there as an MSP is uh, overwhelming. And so I, I built a security program uh, with sales marketing material, and I've been training sales people at MSPs and uh, helping them review helping owners review products and services to build their cybersecurity stack so that they can go to market with this in a matter of weeks and maybe even one to two months for setting 30, 60, 90 day goals to start executing on it. That's really cool. So you're not actually doing the work then. You're all, let me rephrase. You're not, you're not becoming like an outsourced sock or anything. No, I had considered doing that, but that's, that's not where I want to be. Like, I do assessments. Like I started out doing sure. assessments. I like doing cybersecurity assessments because it's not just about running a network scanner and saying, hey, fix all this red stuff. Ooh, that, I don't feel like that's value. And I'm not satisfied with a customer's experience with me unless I feel like they've gotten real business value out of the interaction. So mm-hmm. uh, I've made an assessment process that focuses on, okay, what is your business? How does it get business done? And then let's look at some of these technical reports. But I'm also going to interview your people and find out what's appropriate for your your industry and your growth style. Like I ran into one company in the energy sector uh, that was actively seeking to acquire other smaller businesses. And I said, that really affects your risk model. You're not assessing them for risk at all when you buy all these companies. You could be buying some very expensive risks. Uh, So, you know, the assessments that I was doing were not specifically just a vulnerability analysis. So I ended up calling them a cyber risk assessment and I was working with MSPs to resell that because 
All I wanted to do was just the assessments. I didn't want to have to hunt all the customers down and all that stuff. I don't want to own that relationship because I think I can help an MSP execute on that stuff. And it turned out that when I was doing those assessments, at the end, I'm making recommendations, obviously, like, hey, based on what I found, you should be fixing things in approximately this order. They're probably going to cost you about this much, you know. So, um, but the MSP who resold my assessment is there ready with proposals to sell the stuff. And so they're, they're making thousands of dollars on the back end. And so we just kind of turned that into a process with marketing and sales materials that, and the process is just educate, assess, remediate. So, you know, there's two different types of buyers with security. There's the ones that want the checkbox compliance. And there's the ones that actually understand security enough that they're looking to adequately protect their business and detect issues so that they can respond. So, so that's really cool. I want to actually um, ask some more questions about the cyber yeah. risk assessment because it, it's it's not something that I've run into yet while while doing this podcast. So, I, it's intriguing. It's interesting to me. So, <clears throat> excuse me. I just can't get rid of that. Um, so these. These assessments. I'm just going to call it an assessment. We know it's a cyber risk assessment. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, cyber is just a, a another way. It's it's kind of confusing because people say cyber risk, but really all risk is business risk, mm-hmm. right? So, so so these assessments, we as the MSP are reselling the assessment. Yeah. So you are. You, I mean, you need to interface with our clients. Yeah, that's correct. And you're the one that will also provide the results to the clients. Yeah. So I had I had early on tested with white labeling it so that uh, MSP they could call it their own assessment. But really, that the MSPs like that idea because they want to look super competent in cybersecurity. Absolutely. But then it looks like the you know, you're checking your own work. And so it didn't come across well to clients when it costs a couple thousand dollars to do an assessment. Hey, pay me to check my own work. How about it's not just, it's not very well received. So we, we shifted the messaging to if, if I'm the MSP talking, look, we've partnered with a cybersecurity expert. He's doing these assessments. Uh, we resell them. So he works with companies like us to provide security advisement to you guys. He's not going to pull any punches. He's going to tell us what we're doing wrong, but it's a learning process for us as well as you. Uh, we want to get into doing cybersecurity better. So as long as the MSP follows this this messaging chain, it works really well. And you have to start with a, a few trusted clients and say, look, we're starting down this cybersecurity journey because we want to raise the base level of security for you and all the rest of our clients. And so as we go through these assessments, we're going to be learning along the way as well. So he's going to come in and look and see what's in practice, not just technical settings, but also business practices that introduce risk from a technical perspective. And so that narrative has worked pretty well in the sales process. Awesome. And, and then they, they trust me as an independent party. Yeah. And, and I mean, that the makes clients. sense because it's, it's just like an audit, you know, that, I mean, if, if you look at it like that, this could literally be an audit on, on the MSP. 
Yeah. But not in a, what am I doing wrong? It's, it's more a, where can we just improve things yeah. for our client? So yeah, and people I, ask me like, what, what standard are, what standard are you grading us on? And, you know, I said, really, in my experience working with MSPs and their SMB clients, you can pick a framework and we can go do that. Like I built an assessment for a NIST CSF, but that gets pretty complicated pretty quick when you, we'll get to that in a little bit. It's, sure. I ended up making an assessment based on Caleb Christopher's experience, education, and best intentions. I've read the, the standards and I think for a small business, you know what, you don't have to follow a framework necessarily to get the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to real cybersecurity risk reduction. Because that's what it's about. It's not about compliance with a framework unless you've got some regulatory compliance requirement. It's about how do I reduce risk to my business? Sometimes that's cyber insurance. Sometimes that's two-factor authentication, a combination thereof. Uh, sometimes it's a change in business practices. So mine are pretty custom at the moment. Okay. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to poke at you with a compliment. Caleb, you, you look like a, a young guy. Um, mm. You know, I, 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 have, I have no idea how to judge age anymore because, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid to late 30s now. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I remember, you know, looking at, you know, late teenager, early adult, whatever you want to call it, and thinking, you know, they don't look that much younger to me. And now they look like babies. You know, it's just as you as you become yeah. older, like so. So now I, I, because I, I still think, oh, I'm a young guy, you know, but I'm not. So, so then I look at you, and I'm like, oh, you're maybe around my age. You're a young guy. So <laughs> then, then the the concern is, and my luck, you're like 55, and you just look great for your age or something, right? Oh. So. <laughs> my knees feel 55. That's for sure. I didn't yeah. think this was going to happen. Well, uh, just don't do what I did and go on the seafood diet and you'll be fine, Caleb. Think of how my knees feel. Um, I wouldn't worry about that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, and, and, and the reason I'm picking on you and, and saying you look young is how can we trust the Caleb Christopher yeah security assessment based on your knowledge and expertise when you look like you just got out of college and have only been doing this for under 10 years. Yeah. I got some testimonials for just that purpose, <laughs> but I've got a guy, he, he, uh, he's one of my, uh, keystone clients. He's been, I've been working with him for a couple of years now. He, uh, he's with my assessment, he sold his first, uh, security only client. They already had an internal IT department, um, and he's an MSP, and so he really didn't have any other way to get business with them except, you know what? We found a way to sell SOC to their environment. We proved that they needed detection in place, that they didn't have it, they, that they weren't equipped to deliver it, and that also neither was the MSP to deliver SOC itself. But as a SOC partner reseller, they were able to resell you know, a national grade sock into this client's environment. And so they're doing hardly any work and they're making, I don't know, they were almost $3,000 MRR 
on just the sock. Uh, nice. That's not what they're making. That's what they're billing. That's but their now, They're gross, doing like right? little or no work. They came in, they did the assessment, they got paid for the assessment and made money for for running my assessment. So I have a flat price to the MSP and they marked it up. And then at the end of the assessment, they sold sock and now they're making MRR as a result. So, I, I mean, I've got testimonials yeah. that the process works. Okay. And so, so can we get crazy? Can we, can we do like a trial run? Do you want to assess me real quick? How, how does this work? Is this something you can even do? Oh, <laughs> no, not, not on the air. It's, it's like a two week assess, uh, oh, okay. assessment. Yeah. Well, good. That, that means you actually take time and, and put effort into this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had clients tell me like, uh, they've, they've quit, why are you asking me this? Well, I mean, I need to understand how your business works in order to figure out where the risk is coming from. Because, you know, if, if your company has a loose and fast guideline or policy for salespeople that lets them install whatever apps they want on their computers and travel about and come back, that's a totally different risk model than one where, where they've got application whitelisting already in place or they've got strict policies and procedures uh, and and whatnot. So where are you going to end up receiving the most risk? And then where do you need to spend money to reduce it? Two, two totally different answers, depending upon business A or B there. Absolutely. And um, do you ever get pushback from the, the business owner? Like, uh, yeah, I'm not giving you, like, it, it almost sounds like you're asking, you know, questions that are none of your damn business type questions, right? Yeah, I haven't run into that sort of resistance. I have. Okay. It's been more of a curiosity, like, why do you need to know that? But the answer I just gave a minute ago, that that seems to pacify that, that sure. resistance. And And I'm not worried that people would just tell you to, you know, go get bent or something. I'm I mean, just they're, curious. They're paying me to do the assessment, so they'll generally, com- uh, they'll generally comply. <laughs> right. I And I guess where, where my thought is, what if they're paying you to do an assessment, but you're actually just making thousands of dollars to then get more personally identifying information and steal an identity. Yeah, I think that's a bit too conspiracy theorist for for the people I've run into. That's fair. So so what you're saying is take the tinfoil hat off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um so so what is the the price? Is this a it you know one size fits all type of price or yeah i've got a fixed scope of work that so when somebody partners with me they can have a copy of my scope of work because if you take this scope of work and have a client sign it and you hand me a copy of it we're good to go with with that price so and the price is under three thousand dollars for that flat rate i've got somebody marking it up to five thousand and then marking it down a little bit to forty two hundred or something like that so uh for so they'll a couple give a of discount. hours of work on, yeah, <laughs> mark it up and mark it down and call it good, right? Oh, your your uh, healthcare, we we think you need this really bad, so we're going to mark it off eight hundred dollars. So yeah, that sort of stuff. However, however you want to sell it, that works. But I <laughs> think, yeah, that's fair. 
And so, so for a couple of hours of work on their yeah. part, they have to facilitate my access, right? They've got the RMM, so I need to be able to, to, to remotely access systems and run technical vulnerability scans. And then they participate in meetings with me like, hey, this is what I'm finding. I need to validate some of this stuff with you guys. Uh, is this really the way this is set up? Is there a good reason it's set up this way? If not, okay, we'll, we'll find a way to make recommendations. Um, I mean, I, I try not to make MSPs look bad, but we're not we're not going to be dishonest in any fashion about what we found. So I usually give, well, I always give the MSP a heads up on, hey, this is what I found. These are the things you can fix before we get on that call next week. And so mm. when I go through the briefing, I'm going to tell them this is what I found. But you can say, you can interrupt me and say, and we already fixed that. And it comes across, again, if we go back to that messaging, if the MSP is saying to the client, look, we're trying to up our game on security as well. So this is primarily an assessment for you, but we're going to learn some stuff about what we're doing or maybe not doing. And we're going to raise the base level of cybersecurity for you and all of our other clients as we go through these with more clients and we learn. So the more exposure we get to this, the better everybody's environment gets. And so if that's the narrative from the start, then it's no problem for Caleb to say, you know, and I found some settings that I'm really not a fan of. Uh, this introduces risk. And really, that's on the MSP. And they're like, yeah, we, we acknowledge that we've already fixed it. And we've actually started fixing that among all of our other clients as well. That's a really good message. That's progressive. That shows that, yeah, I am getting I am starting to do cybersecurity. Your environment is getting better. Your risk is going down just by default because we're fixing stuff. Which is really cool because, man, it's almost worth it for the MSP to to pay for you to do one of these assessments for a client. I've been saying that. People aren't doing it. <laughs> Fair. I've been saying that. So, so let's talk about that for a second. Um, is there a version of this assessment where maybe you're not actually talking to the client? Maybe you're just assessing the MSP's work on the client so that, and, and maybe you don't even have to sit down and talk to the client, you know, results, none of that, because it's the MSP that's basically doing an audit for their own peace of mind to make sure that this is being done right. Do you have like a different scope of work for that? Or is that we're just changing some names and removing some line items? Yeah, it's it's the same process. Um, I really don't change anything there. Uh, I could do one of those. In fact, I did have a client who they had a cybersecurity. They had a ransomware infection that hit their customers. And for one of the customers that they were on the risk on the verge of losing, they said, look, we're going to cover this. We're going to get an assessment for you to see what else is what are the things we can fix? And you're going to benefit from a full on cyber risk assessment. Uh, mm. But it will also give us peace of mind about what we've done to fix things. So it has happened in, in that fashion. Uh, and uh, one of my clients also said if if it was going to make the difference in starting a relationship with a client and not starting a relationship, I would foot the bill for the security assessment because. Uh, that's the start of a consultative or strategic relationship with the client. And the assessment, while it can be profitable, is not where the real money is. The real money is in that long-term relationship where we start doing cybersecurity remediation projects and or subscription service uh, for monitoring, detection, and response. No, and that, I mean, that makes absolute sense. So um, 
what what does it look like i i want to i want to dig in past the surface here so yeah. i'm i'm almost asking you some secret sauce but let's be honest the real secret sauce is in having the third party do the audit right it so, is that's that's the big bit so answer answer some of the most easily fixed common type things that does that even make sense that you see happen a lot across the board yeah and this is really interesting because and the msps love this because it starts that strategic conversation with business leadership people hate passwords right people hate having Mm -hmm. to change their passwords every 30 or 60 days and whatnot Uh, they don't want to do two-factor authentication all these other things because it's all inconvenient i just wrote an article called it's okay for some things to be hard and that's part of the message that I communicate to executives. And I'll say, look, some of these settings, actually most of the settings I'm finding are business practice based or they are the result of the tone from the top. So if you will not tolerate the inconvenience, Mr. Executive, that it takes for to, to enable real security on your accounts, then the MSP is not going to enforce it. You have to tolerate it. You have to want this. So once you uh, this is an educational process. Chiefly, my assessment is an educational process for executives. So once I help you understand that this is a real risk and that you can do something about it, what if we had some, now I'm going to oversimplify the security value proposition, but if we could make accessing your accounts a difficulty level 10 out of 10 for an attacker and add an inconvenience or difficulty level of one or two for you, the gap there, that eight points is your security value. You've kept it really hard for attackers to get in, and you've added only a minor inconvenience for yourself. I'd say that's a worthwhile effort. you got to take that in context between the spending and, and the amount of effort required and, and whatnot, but that's generally how people need to start thinking about security. Difficulty is okay. It has business value. I think I went on a tangent there. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's absolutely okay. okay. So it sounds like you know passwords and 2FA are, yeah, oh, yeah. are one of the the big screen offenders. Yes, yeah, so we, we've got I've got a section I just call it the cyber hygiene basics and it's chock full of the same stuff every single time. And most of it comes back to the tone at the top from the executives. Now there may mm-hmm. be a little bit of a communication failure in the part of the MSP like they know it's best practice but they have failed to put it into words or messaging that the business owner and say, yeah, I guess that's worth it. Let's go ahead and turn that on. And th- this is that wake up call. This is the opportunity to, okay, let's go ahead and do this. And one of my favorite things to show people is what a passphrase is. It's crazy how many people still don't know that. How many MSPs have not engaged their clients on the concept of passphrases because they make stuff a lot easier. Uh, in fact, if you're doing 12 to 16 character passwords, you can change them every 180 to 360 days. And when I say that, the the business owners are like, what? I don't have to change my password every month? Sign me up. Yeah, but but at the same time, you know, the the concern I have is that all of my clients are going to be like, oh, I've got the perfect passphrase. And I'm doing this with a Trump voice on purpose. I've got the perfect passphrase. It's going to be, this is my passphrase. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Like, that's like the password one, two, three of passphrases, right? I guess. 
<laughs> Are you well, familiar with that quote? <clears throat> what the this is my passphrase thing? This this is my rifle. There are many like it, but oh, this yeah, one is yeah. mine. So I I suspect that there is a pass password one two three of passphrases. I'm sure and, there is. And that's always and that's one of the other points I make is well so what I do is I recommend that you know look around your office, look at your desk, find a picture of your kids, something you can see as a reminder of your passphrase, and write about that day. Make it a sentence. Add spaces, use separate words, you know, punctuation and all that stuff. Um, so like looking at a kid at, at, with playing soccer. So the password is, or passphrase is that day at the park or something like that. Like use something that's easy to remember that you can see that's not something like this is my passphrase. And and if you want to get real crazy and creative, you know, think about your kids when they were like, I don't know, at that age where they're they're mispronouncing words like my son uh he whenever he tried to say chicken it came out shitting it literally sounded like he was saying shitting so (laughs) so you know feel free to use the the weird mispronunciations of words that that your adorable little kids would say as part of your best phrase because let me tell you that is like next level Never gonna get hacked. <laughs> yeah, I like eating shitting. What? <laughs> All right. So, um, I I like that uh, passphrase. That's that's great. Um, it sounds like you have a blog that we should be checking out, but I don't see it on the infosec.io website. Yeah, I wanted to make a few more posts before I publish it mainstream. I mean, if you if you type slash blog on the end, you'll see a couple of posts <laughs> on the end That's of the fair. URL. Um, let's see. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to talk about. We've got enough posts. This this oh, is enough right. to go live. I'll go ahead and publish it, publish it then. Uh, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about with the security assessments, um, and not to brag, but to talk about the the seriousness of the issue is the issue the the concept of people using color scales to indicate how much money you should be spending. They do these risk matrices with, you know, a low is, is a one, a medium is a two, and a three is a high, or vice versa. And so then you get like fake math formulas like, oh, a medium plus a high times medium equals, hey, you need to resolve this immediately. That makes my brain it's, hurt. I know. It looks pretty on paper. And IT people love to show these charts and say, look at the red. You need to fix this. That's okay, but that math doesn't add up. So, like, you're you're going to tell me that you're going to run this risk assessment. Even security firms are doing this. They, people will assert that there's not enough information to make a reasonable estimation of actual risk in dollars. Okay. So, instead, you're going to use low times medium plus high equals spend $7,000 today. That makes more sense? No. Even a rudimentary assessment of, you know what, I know you're in the healthcare industry and there's like, just by default, there's a 16.1% chance that you're going to get a breach this year. And that breach is going to cost up to $150,000 if you're in that 16.1% range. There is a 12% chance it's going to be from $150,000 to $500,000. 
and a 7% chance it's going to be from $500,000 up to $2.5 million. And these oh. are the risks. Let me show you. This is the list of risks, Mr. CEO, that bring in those chances. That's more information. I just think it's, it's unwise to base multi-thousand dollar security spending decisions on fake math. And that's what most people are doing when they call it a security assessment. They end up saying, hey, these colors multiply and equal you spending $24,000 over the next two years. Okay. Uh, right. I, I like that. So that's that. the problem that I would like to combat. Yeah, that, that's, really, that's really good information. I never thought of that. So where do we, MSPs, go to learn about, well, Healthcare, sixteen percent risk, seven percent risk. Like, is there a is there a chart somewhere, Caleb? Yeah. Well, so I read the Verizon DBIR, and I reread it, and I reread it, and I highlight, and I take notes in the margins. And if you're good with data, you can explore the raw data and come up with your own conclusions. That's cool. But uh, I earmark every vertical that they list, and I study it. And when I go to a client and find out what vertical they're in, I pull that tab up and I start looking at the major risks in that area uh, for their vertical. So, uh, for example, I did a healthcare client and I said, look, you've got this 16.1% chance just for existing in the healthcare vertical that you're going to have an incident in the next 12 months that's going to cost you up to $150,000. Now, based on this assessment, what I'm going to do is change that number up or down based on what I'm finding that you're doing and what I'm finding that you're not doing. And in this case, so I'll, I'll reference this, this example. In this case, I'm going to bump you from a 16.1% chance up to an 18% chance because there are some things you're not doing. Now, it would be easy to do those things and drop it below the 16%. However, I want to highlight the fact that a 2% difference doesn't sound like very much. A 2% difference chance that you're going to have an incident this year. But we're going from almost a one in six chance to almost a one in five chance of an incident this year. That means if you take five other organizations, four other organizations like yourself, I'm putting you into a group of five other, four other organizations. One of those organizations would have a breach this year or some incident that costs up to $150,000. And uh, if we start looking at it at as a one in five or a one in four, even those those starts and sorts of numbers start to be more impactful than just the percentages, and far more impactful than red. What does critical mean? Does that mean something's going to happen this month, this year? Yeah. How much will it cost if it happens? You know, how do I justify spending based on this this fake math by how scary the report was? No, you, the boards of directors need some cybersecurity person's estimation of actual risk. Even if it's a really rough estimate, it's worth more than colors. I I just opened up the the 2020 Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, the DBIR, and uh, there's there's no like paywall. There's no give us your email to it's access free. it. Like this is as free as it can be, guys. Um, yeah, I got a lot of respect for Verizon for doing that. There's a lot, a lot of information. In fact, I would encourage IT companies, if you experience or one of your clients experiences a breach or a cyber incident, part of your incident response plan 
part of the conclusion of that should be going to report it to Verizon because they will put that data, they'll take anonymous data, but they will take that data and incorporate it into these analytics and everybody benefits. I think part of everybody's incident response plan should be to report it to this group, the, the Verizon for, for analysis. So if, if you don't report it to Verizon, are you implying that they don't know about it? Yes. Okay. So I, and I just have to ask stupid questions because, you know, I wasn't sure if, uh, you know, there's like a big brother Verizon out there where they're, where they're just aware, like, Oh, crap. No, so they, they know that they, they got. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's Department of Homeland Security and, and other groups that are collecting crime stats data. So if you report it to the police, that can trickle up, and then there's participation at these really high levels between DHS and Verizon for this DBIR, and some of the, the major managed detection and response and incident response firms are working with Verizon. But it's mainly large enterprise clients that have those sorts of connections, or it's large enterprises that are clients of these groups that have the connection with Verizon for that data interchange. Uh, and I'm getting to speaking out of my depth as to how all that data is collected, but they've got quite a few incidents that they're listing and they're showing you the likelihood of an issue uh, in that. But it, yeah, you just got to take time and read it. And uh, were it not for COVID, I actually had it on my calendar this year to have a Verizon DBR party where I was going to buy pizza for me and my security minded friends and we were going to read it beforehand and then come together. And I was going to guide everybody through a let's go through this vertical by vertical. And maybe it takes two meetings. But in the end, all of us will have a better understanding just off the top of our heads to be able to talk real security to people. Hmm. Now, I have a, a colleague. I consider him a friend. Uh, you know, we're one of those. He, he lives in the other end of the country. We'll never meet kind of friends. But a friend. Um, he, he is my, my ancient aliens guy of cybersecurity. So, you know, the ancient aliens guy with the hair and the, and the tinfoil hat and the crazy, like he's not crazy, but he's, he's just talks and my eyes glaze over and his conversations it's off, it's off screen. It's that high guys. Okay. So the cool thing is you and I are having a conversation and I actually understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. And that's what I want to train MSPs to do. When, when he and I has a, have a conversation, he's like, Oh yeah, I, I something, something APT. And, Oh, it just, he, he starts throwing out words and initialisms and, uh, starts talking about, just I, I can't even tell you what he talks about because it doesn't make sense to me, Caleb. Because it's all because technical he, vulnerabilities. Because he he runs an MSSP that also happens to do MSP services. Like he actually runs yeah. an MSSP, and us MSPs. Um, there are MSPs that that try to run the MSSP game, but all they are is a security minded MSP. Right? They're not an actual MSSP. So, right. so even though us MSPs start to understand some of the cybersecurity stuff, he's just on a whole nother level. Plus he's like, you know, that, like that genius level, uh, 
you, you just can't have a conversation with him, man, un- unless mm-hmm. you're ready for your brain to hurt after 20 minutes. Huh. It's just what it is. Well, that's in, that messaging is part of the sales cycle. Educate, assess, and remediate. You can't justify, for a lot of clients, you can't get them to justify spending a few thousand dollars on an assessment if they don't understand their need for it. So, again, there's two types of clients that we're going to find. We're going to find the checkbox compliance types that are like, hey, I have to have a risk assessment. Give me the quickest, easiest thing so I can check this box. I need a pen test. What's the cheapest, lowest cost option? I just want to pass. I don't want to fail my pen test. Just get me something. And so that we can move on and I need to buy this product or service from you. So it's compliance related. That's a different customer journey than the ones where you actually get to engage and educate them and they start to get it. And so I've got like a one sheet educational piece that's about protect, detect, respond. I mean, so NIST CSF is identify, protect, detect, respond, recover. But that's too much for a business person to have to deal with. How about protect, detect, respond? That's the easiest way to frame it. Right. And so I've got a little scenario, a non-technical scenario that I train salespeople to go through. Um, and it's best. So you can do it with a one-page infographic that you're holding. But it's best when you can draw it live on a piece of paper or on a whiteboard because it's coming out of your head. And there's this subconscious thing. goes back to like grade school. Whoever's standing, and even in college, whoever's standing in the front of the room with a marker in hand, drawing on a whiteboard or a chalkboard or whatever, that's the expert. And so even if a non-cybersecurity salesperson is standing at the front of a room or drawing on a piece of paper, they're the cybersecurity expert who is revealing this this uh, knowledge to the other person. And so it's more trustworthy when it comes from somebody you ascribe authority to. It's really interesting. You can play some of these psychological um, concepts to your benefit. And so if you're the one that makes security click for somebody, they're much more likely to buy from you. That's great. And it's easiest to do that with a non-technical example and then pivot and say from 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 the end of that and say, okay, so now that you understand the requirement for security in this area of life, why aren't we doing that on your network? Oh, oh, okay. Well, what's the next step? Well, the next step is an assessment so that we can figure out where to best prioritize our efforts and time and and your money. And then once we get the assessment, we'll get recommendations on the best ways to reduce risk in a realistic fashion. I think and that's where you can really spend some money with me. Oh, <laughs> I, I think your green screen has, uh, has cheated you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, my arm flips. I start, I start getting animated in my. <laughs> I don't know how many people are are listening and they think this is stupid, but my arms clip off at the elbows when I reach out because the way my green screen's set up. So there you, you go. You start looking like that nubs. You start looking like that guy from uh, uh, Tiger King. I haven't watched that. That's one of the things I like. I don't want to go and watch it because I want to be able to say that I haven't. <laughs> yeah. You're you're one of those people, huh? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, let's see here. Talk talk to me about a few more. I, I want to call them quick wins that MSPs can like fix things that they're I'm going to say doing wrong. We talked about like passwords and two FA. Yeah. 
All right. Are there any other common ones that you see out there of, of things that the MSPs can fix? VLANs. Okay. <laughs> what what would you say? VLANs are not configured to, to block east-west traffic. I mean, they're just they're just administrative groupings rather than actual segments that have ACLs or firewall rules or whatever you want to call it between them. Gotcha. And what would you say is the best practice method for VLANs? Because I feel like, you know, everyone's got their own opinion and we all know what opinions are like. So what is the the real best practice method for VLANs? Uh, I hate giving this answer, but it's whatever whatever your team can deploy consistently and accurately. Um, you I, you like need, uh, I know there's general rules that you need to follow, but you can set up your own schema, right? So okay. if, if you decide that finance needs to be separate from HR, needs to be separate from sales, and if, like if the company's big enough to justify all those separations, cool then separate those groups of workstations and give the finance access only to the or give only finance access, uh, subnet access to a particular server or you know resource through the network that's the sort of stuff you need to make those decisions but once you make the decisions of the logical groupings or the administrative groupings don't just create vlans and let them all talk to each other that's what people are doing that's the problem they actually need to have access control rules, lists, and rules to prevent a general workstation from communicating inbound to a finance workstation, and probably vice versa. One of the biggest problems we have and why ransomware spreads is east-west traffic on the network. So it's not north-south. It's not computer to server, or and it's not you know workstation to, to internet. That's monitored by a firewall. That's where we can do threat detection. But a lot of things... Uh, happen if, if something gets passed and it does protection always fails eventually when we do protect detect respond protection does fail at some point because email is designed to get through firewalls and it does when something happens you have to be able to detect the issue in order to respond and if we can't detect east west traffic then an entire subnet's going to get infected and if that subnet can talk to other subnets then guess what other subnets are going to get infected all of them so you could at least, from look, looking at it from this perspective, you could at least limit the damage to a single subnet. So how many subnets is it worth setting up at your clients if it means that you know only 15 computers instead of 60 get ransomware? That starts to be worth worth doing. But I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Okay, so you're talking about you know 15 computers instead of 60, but wouldn't wouldn't it be fair to say all of the subnets will need to talk to at least one common subnet? You know, if they've got server or servers in that office, then chances are many or most or all of the devices need to be able to talk to the servers. So isn't that still kind of poking holes in that east-west? I mean, you're still going to have... 
that it's you're still, still going to have that internal one... traffic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can still make it so that that sort of traffic has to go through a firewall, and that traffic can be inspected. Especially if it's internal traffic, that can be inspected without, uh, in most cases, without uh, SSL decryption. So that you know that that gets really complicated and and legal nightmarish for a lot of people when you do uh, when you break encryption and you proxy traffic and whatnot to see the inside of encrypted communications to the outside because what if somebody goes to their personal banking website and you're capturing the credentials or medical that gets really complicated but if it's all internal communication and you don't have encryption encrypted connections on your network like nobody does then that traffic can be inspected 100 percent and so if you run it through a security appliance like a firewall then it just works that that works just fine and then if you're running things through a firewall internally, you're going to need to get, in theory, a big, bad firewall, because we're not talking about, you know, the 100 or 300 meg internet. We're talking about right. gigabit uh, ethernet internally. So you're going to need to make sure that if this is a true concern. Right. And And I think that's where security gets expensive and you need to figure out what sure does. what level of risk is worth because because an internal firewall might not drop the percentage points enough to justify the thousands you're going to spend uh and by you i mean the customer uh to well, have to I, have the I, SP install the firewall right i think if you've got a firewall based on manufacturer recommended specs you can probably put a couple of subnets for SMBs. Now, if you're talking enterprise, yeah, you got a lot more computers, but how much internal traffic there is for an SMB, especially with everything moving to the cloud, I think the internal traffic really isn't as much as it used to be. And so if you got recommended specs for the size of the network, then that firewall will probably still work for finance and HR and maybe a couple of other small groups uh, with no issues to inspect that internal traffic. Also, since it's not having to break decryption and re-encrypt, that's a load off the processing as well. So the way that the way that I've always done VLANs um, is BYOD type devices, phones, tablets get their own. Yeah. The, there's a guest VLAN yeah. for non-employee BYOD stuff. Um, and then there's the VoIP VLAN and then the computers and server VLAN. So, but to be fair, I've never worked with a company that had more than 90 devices. Well, that's not true in a single building. So, um, is that the way that you would say, I mean, is that a, a safe VLAN setup? Is it overkill? Is it, Steve, what are you doing? That's that's stupid. You need to be doing it like this because it's no, need I, at least 12 VLANs. That, like. <laughs> I would find that to be pretty normal. I think the, the only yeah. difference would be like, is, is do you have a group of, and it depends on the business, do you have a group of computers that's using an internal application that's hosted locally? That would justify a VLAN so that they can be protected with or to and from their server and everything else doesn't need to access or touch that. 
I like that. So it, and you know, it, it's another not that it's a one... universal. These five VLANs we do everywhere, sure, but but this, this customer has an internal application they're running. So let's put a, a VLAN on that for if it's if it's not all workstations that have to access, for example. An, another one that I've I've had to start implementing is the I'll call it smart home slash smart office VLAN. Yeah. You know the the hey yeah. hey wake words you know turn on the lights or you know those types of devices or those um I always want to call it Sophos but it's not it's Sonos those those fancy yeah. Wi-Fi speakers. So like I I think I typically put those on their own VLAN, um, even and separate from BYOD or Guest, just yeah. because I don't have a good reason other than once I start to organize, everything gets its own organizational thing. Yeah, valid. Well, and you can also set up specific rules because if you want, so sometimes your device on a protected network still needs to be able to communicate to and from the iot device or the smart home device and so you can set up rules between the vlans specifically for that so that if for example my phone initiates a connection to a smart switch then allow that and allow that connection to it's a stateful connection right so if i initiate allow the connection as long as it's live and when i shut it off don't let it talk back right so just like going out to the internet we're not allowing any connections inbound but if i visit a website then sure allow that connection as long as it's active uh, and there's a couple of other things you can allow so that you've got uh, streaming media and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, so VLANs is one of those things I, that we find as a, as a basic, eh, you could be doing better here sort of thing. So let's change gears a little bit, and let's talk about everyone's favorite topic, COVID-19. Oh, yeah. So we don't have to talk about PPP loans and and all that crap. Let's let's just talk meat and potatoes. Now might be an even better time to do a security assessment or cyber risk assessment. I apologize. I I dumbed down your assessment. Um, (laughs) I already already dumbed it down. I can't dumb it down any further. Right. We're already pulled over. Yeah. <laughs> you take it back right meow. Um all right, so uh now's probably a great time to do it because you know everyone's working from home. Like let's let's see how secure are we with uh the the work laptop being on the same network as the kids' Nintendo Switch and Xbox and whatever else, right? Like yeah, so my assessment actually, I, I don't have a way to evaluate people's home setups, right. and that would be pretty cantankerous. But we can we can talk about what settings are on the on the laptop and what you're enforcing because yes. a lot of times people just let their kids play it. They don't they don't have um, the like screen lock settings and things like that. So they'll walk away from their computer and leave it unlocked, and their kid will go play games or visit sites and all that stuff. Or uh, I've seen this a lot. My work computer has a webcam. My kid has to have a webcam for school, so I just use the crap laptop for work while the kid uses the work laptop for school. That is terrible. That but is we've kind of all been forced. We've all been forced into this situation, so I, I I understand how everybody's unprepared. 
uh, I myself, I just had a new baby, so I'm doing a lot of typing at night. So maybe we need to do a little bit of a shift of what time work happens so that it can coincide with school. Now that school's coming to a close, is not that much of an issue, but um, COVID actually gave me the opportunity to bring up incident response planning and testing with some clients. Um, huh. The key thing, to, the key takeaway there is that don't build your incident response plan around scenarios. Build it around impact. And people love to think of scenarios and then write a plan based on that scenario. Okay, so if there's a fire, we're going to do this. If there's a tornado, we're going to do this. Okay, so you you may have some of the natural disaster sort of stuff as scenario-related stuff, but ultimately, what's the impact? Uh, the impact is people can't come into the office. Okay, now let's design a response plan around that business continuity plan around people can't come into the office, whether it's COVID, whether the there's a flood, whether there's a fire, if the office is unavailable, how will we continue to operate? So business continuity and incident response need to be designed around impact, not scenario. Hmm. And, and this goes beyond like, I mean, you know, when, when, when we as MSPs think about, is there a flood? Is there a fire? We're typically thinking, you know, data or BDR appliance and uh, hot site, so that way people can go somewhere to work and you know yada yada yada. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's there's security stuff that we should probably think about, huh? Yeah. So instead of running, letting everybody run work from home on their personal laptops. Maybe it's a worthwhile investment to spin up VMs in Azure or somewhere else and then make everybody get a connection to a secu- just just lift and shift, right? Replicate your network on a secure cloud network and only allow two-factor authentication access to the work network. So they're still using a remote endpoint, but it's an encrypted connection to the work, the work endpoint. And the actual work endpoint where all the data lives now or would be shifted to is now in a secure location and you've reasonably secured things again. That is really, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that I've, you know, thought of, and I'm sure many MSPs have thought of, but I don't know that we've really thought of it like, Oh, we need to be doing it for security purposes. I think we might've actually thought of it as it's just easier for us to, put all the data there and manage it all there. Like it's an internal network. Yeah. We do it because it's easier, not because it's smarter. But if you can show that it's both, that's the, well, well, I, I think a lot of MSPs speaking from what I've seen in the past, historically, I think a lot of MSPs, um, don't worry about security first in every thing they do. I wouldn't expect them to. An MSP is a data custodian. An MSP right. is not a security specialist. There's the data owner, the custodian, and there's an, there's another role for security. And so managed services or IT maintenance gets into the first 10, 20% of security. So there's some overlap between data custodian and the person responsible for securing data. But it's it's not the same role. And so MSP's role is to find good cybersecurity partners and be a broker of the best products and services that they can for their clients. The MSP is the most strategic 
not when they try to be a security expert, unless that's what they're actually going to do. But that, that changes the business model and changes the cost structures and all that stuff. The MSP's highest value is to be that strategic partner that, that helps set the, IT, the technology roadmaps. Let's get the most out of your technology. Let's enable your people to, to work remotely more effectively. Let's also find a partner who can do 24-7, 365 monitoring and security remediation because that's too much for my team to handle. And if I, if I train my people to do that sort of stuff, they're going to get poached constantly. So instead of trying to be something you're not, why not find partners and just build a profitable relationship? You still own the relationship with the client. That's the strategic value. Hmm. I like it. Well, Caleb, um, anything else that you think MSPs should hear before we wrap it up? Yeah, that old quote. I don't know where it came from, but we talked about IoT earlier. I think my, that's one of my favorite quotes is, about that is the S in IoT stands for security. So there is no S in IoT. Stuff. Exactly. So do your own segmentation. Well, good. Caleb, thanks so much for hopping on here with me today. I would love to pick your brain some other time uh, just to dive into this stuff further. However, for those of you that are like, holy crap, I need to talk to Caleb right now, uh, you guys can go to InfoSec, I-N-F-O-S-E-C dot I-O, not dot com, it's dot I-O. And you can learn, um, honestly, it looks like you can learn all the things that we talked about today. Uh, you can learn the three easy steps to get started with Caleb and InfoSec Consulting. And you can see the, uh, the, the cyber risk assessment as well as uh, ongoing services. You can see that, they, that Caleb has some of that type of stuff going as well. So... Caleb, this is great, man. You are uh, you're very well spoken. You you use little words, not big words. It's more good. There you go. It's more gooder. <laughs> uh, so so yeah. Anytime you want to come back, please just let me know. And thank you. Thanks for doing this.